welcome back to the Unseen Podcast, a podcast dedicated to missing people, unresolved cases and UK true crime. Today we're going to be exploring an extremely mysterious case from 1976. 15-year-old Peter Watts left his home in Colwyn Bay, North Wales in January that year and just under 10 hours later his body was found 200 miles away. What happened to Peter and how? His murder remains unsolved and so do many of the other baffling questions related to the day that he disappeared. I can't find exactly who suggested this case to me but I want to say thank you and if it was you please let me know and I'll give you a shout out. This episode contains descriptions that some listeners may find distressing so listener discretion is advised. At around 1.35am on Monday, January the 19th, 1976, Mr John Morgans was driving through a vehicle underpass on Euston Road in central London. As he got halfway through the underpass, he noticed something by the side of the road in the offside lane. On first glance, he thought they were a bundle of clothes that had been discarded in the underpass. He decided to slow down to get a closer look and it was then that he realised this was not just a pile of clothes. A young boy lay on the floor, and to John Morgan's it looked as though there'd been an accident. The underpass was for vehicles only, and pedestrians were not meant to walk through it, so it didn't seem completely unheard of that an accident could have occurred. John Morgan's later stated that he got out of his vehicle to go and check on the boy, and noticed that he had a sluggish pulse and was barely alive. It's reported in North Wales Weekly News at the time that he said, There was another cab driver behind me and I told him to block the lane. Then I called emergency services and went back to help the boy. He was lying on his back in a semi-prone position and didn't respond to any physical or verbal stimulation. He had an injury on the left-hand side of his head and there was a pool of blood beside him. Morgans noted that he had never seen anyone walking in the vehicle underpass and it would be very strange to see someone do so. An ambulance quickly came out to the scene, and ambulance driver Valerie Savage examined the young man. She noted that he was unconscious, and he had likely suffered a fractured skull. He was transferred to University College Hospital, where it was determined that he was deeply unconscious and had a severe head injury. He was examined by Dr Howard Baderman at the hospital, and he determined through x-rays that the teenager had a very extensive depressed fracture at the back of his skull. This was by far the biggest injury, however he also had other injuries, including several fractured ribs and injuries to his left shoulder. Staff at the hospital immediately attempted resuscitation on the patient, but unfortunately, after around half an hour, he was certified as dead. The hospital were left with a mystery. Who was this patient and what had happened to him? At first glance, Dr Baderman believed that the teenager's injuries were consistent with a road accident. However, his opinion changed when he examined him closely. He discovered that there was no dirt from the road in the head wound, which was unusual if he had struck the ground, and his body was surprisingly clean and free of any dirt or debris. Dr Baderman explained at the time that the teenager's body was impeccably clean, as though it had just been washed. This was a strange discovery and didn't fit with the idea that this patient had suffered a fall or had been in a road accident. 
there were similar things noted about his clothes. They were also clean and free from dirt or scuff marks, which would ordinarily suggest that he was the victim of an accident. Dr Baderman and hospital staff told the police about their suspicions of the incident and that it may well have not been an accident. One of the frustrating parts for both the staff and the officers was that there were no personal possessions found in any of the boy's pockets or close to him at the scene. This always makes it difficult to identify someone and this caused a large stumbling block in the investigation. The discovery of the teenager in the vehicle underpass was a mystery and the police were initially at a loss about who he was or what had happened to him. Had he been in some sort of accident or had something else happened to him? While the Metropolitan Police in London were investigating the discovery of the teenage boy close to Euston, Percy Watts and his family were trying to solve their own mystery. Peter, their 15-year-old son, had left their home in Colwyn Bay, North Wales, on Sunday the 18th of January and had not returned. This was a concern for them as Peter was a reliable person and didn't normally just disappear without saying anything to them. Peter's parents had last seen him at home that afternoon. They had decided to go out for a Sunday afternoon drive, but Peter had decided to stay at home and revise. He was studying for his mock O-level exams and wanted to do some extra work. He was known as a diligent student with a passion for chemistry, which he practised in his fully equipped lab in his home. His decision to stay at home, therefore, was not that unusual, and so his parents had not thought anything about leaving him behind. They left at around 3.30pm with Peter doing his work. When they returned back to the house, they discovered that Peter had left after all. He had left them a note that said that he was going to meet a friend to help them with some revision. Despite this note and his parents' expectation that he would be home when he had finished, Peter didn't return. This was a worry for his family and it was out of character for him. They reported his disappearance to North Wales Police, who began investigating where Peter could have gone. The investigation looked into Peter's whereabouts and tried to figure out where he could have gone after leaving his home. It's reported in the North Wales Weekly News that the police's inquiries into his disappearance were initially not known to the general public and an appeal was not launched to try and track down witnesses. It stated that this was done to respect his family and their name and address. Therefore, many of the inquiries that were being done was carried out relatively quietly and without a large amount of media speculation. Detectives believe that after leaving his house, Peter at some point headed towards Colwyn Bay train station. It was thought that he had bought a ticket from Colwyn Bay to Chester at around 4pm that Sunday afternoon. The ticket was a day return ticket for a train that left at 5.18pm. Why Peter did this was unclear, however it was evident that the investigation was leading police to the train station. As Peter had bought a return ticket, it was thought that he had intended on returning back to Colwyn Bay after visiting Chester. However, this of course did not happen. The police were left with the mystery of what Peter had been planning to do that day and why he'd not come home. Detectives tracked down people who had been on the train that day to Chester, however they could find no one who remembered seeing him on there. In fact, there had been no sightings of him on that train at all. 
it seemed like Peter had just vanished into thin air. A few days after his disappearance, it was decided that they needed to publish information about him to the media, in the hope there might be a breakthrough in his case. His name and details were reported on, including the circumstances of his disappearance. It didn't take long for a connection to be made to the current John Doe that the Metropolitan Police had from the vehicle underpass near Euston. Not only did his description match up, but also the timeline of when Peter had gone missing. The teenager had been found around 10 hours after Peter had purchased the ticket to Chester. It was later confirmed that the teenager that they found was indeed Peter Watts. One of the reasons that Peter had not been connected earlier was that his details had not been widely reported on, and also Peter had been found with none of the belongings that his parents had expected. It was believed that he had left the house with his usual possessions, his wallet which had money in it, his ring, his comb, handkerchief and crucially his glasses. None of these were found with him when he was discovered. Not only were his parents and family devastated about his death, they were also baffled by the situation in which he'd been found. How and why had he travelled 200 miles to London and what exactly had happened to him when he got there? Detectives were also wondering these same things, and this was crucial to the investigation. They wanted to establish if Peter had boarded a train to London that evening, and they believed that if he did, it was possible that he'd got on the service from Holyhead to Euston that stopped at Colwyn Bay. This was the same train that also had a stop to Chester. This service would have arrived in London that evening. Detectives made the decision to board the exact same service on Sunday, February the 1st. This was a regular service and it was hoped that some of the same passengers may also have been on the train on Sunday the 18th of January. Armed with photographs and descriptions of Peter, they asked the 260 passengers on the train if they had noticed him on Sunday the 18th. They also placed posters with his picture on in prominent spots around the train. His image was placed everywhere in the hope that someone would remember him or just something about that evening. These posters were also placed along the route down to Euston, assuming that if he had been on that train then a witness may have noticed him when they got on or off. The day after police canvassed the train it was reported that they had some success. The Daily Mirror ran with the story that officers had taken statements from 20 people who remembered seeing Peter on the train on the 18th. The report also states that one of the passengers, a soldier, also remembered speaking to Peter on that train that night. This was a crucial piece of information, and one that suggested that he had indeed got on that train to Euston. This, however, was unfortunately not meant to be, as the lead fell through. It was later reported that the soldier was thought not to be telling the truth. Detective Chief Inspector John Harris made a statement saying that the soldier was talking a bit of rubbish. It would appear that the soldier had made up a story of speaking to and even travelling with Peter. This was a blow for the investigation and sadly meant that they had wasted time looking into something that wasn't useful to finding out what had happened to him. Police believed that Peter had boarded a train from Holyhead to London, 
However, without anyone to actually completely corroborate this, they were unable to say this with 100% certainty. This blow to the investigation was no comfort to Peter's family, who couldn't understand what had happened to him, how or why. His death was a complete mystery and it was unimaginable to those that knew him. On February the 5th, his family were able to lay Peter to rest at St Paul's Church in Colwyn Bay. It was a very sad event, with many of Peter's peers from his high school in attendance. Many people couldn't understand how and why he had been taken from them, and they were left bereft, without any real answers. This was a feeling that was also shared by the Reverend Trevor Davis, who stated at Peter's funeral that they may not gain any comfort from reflecting on the tragic and suspicious circumstances in which he died, but they should leave that up to the police and the media. He also passed comment on the state of society at the time, that many young people were leaving home on innocent trips, only to become victim to some awful crime. It was clear that those close to Peter couldn't understand what had happened, and it would seem that neither could the police. In the time that they had been investigating his death, they appeared to have got no closer to discovering any new leads. At the end of February, it's reported that a £1,000 reward was offered for anyone who could give them new information. Despite this, however, nobody came forward. Peter's death was such a mystery that nobody could understand it. There was a huge gap in the timeline of his evening, and even if he had taken the Hollyhead to Euston train, it meant that he would have arrived in London at around 9.15 that Sunday night. However, he was not found until 1.35am. Had he been in another location and then placed in the underpass later on? The question of what had actually caused his death was also still a mystery. The question was, was it an accident? Or had he been attacked? Or had he committed suicide? This last theory was one that his family vehemently denied and stated that this was not something that Peter would have ever considered. Detectives, however, had to look at all options, as there was no information forthcoming that could answer their many questions. It was hoped that at the inquest into Peter's death in May 1976, these questions could be in some way answered. More information was presented about Peter's day, and some witnesses who may have seen him after he left his home on Woodhill Road testified. A British Rail booking clerk named Howard Goodyear at Colwyn Bay Station told the inquest that a youth had bought a ticket at around 4.20pm that Sunday afternoon. The ticket was a return one to Chester and the teenager paid for it with a £10 note. Although the ticket was for Chester, Goodyear confirmed this train also went all the way through to London. The teenager didn't appear to have much luggage with him. Goodyear stated that he couldn't definitively say that it was Peter. John Morgans, the taxi driver who found Peter, and Valerie Savage, the ambulance driver, both testified to what they saw and did that morning. Detective Inspector John Harris read out three statements from drivers who had driven through the underpass between 1am and 1.30am that morning, who all stated that they didn't see anything there at the time and saw nothing suspicious. Dr Baderman took the stand to explain what he witnessed that night and his examination of Peter's body. He explained that the injury on the left-hand side of his head was compatible with a fall, but stated it was very unusual not to find dirt or debris in the wound. 
Dr Hugh Johnson, a pathologist, went into further detail about Peter's injuries, stating that he had a large bursting laceration on the left-hand side of his head. He also had some abrasions and bruises to the right knuckle and above the right ankle, along with a fractured rib. These injuries, he said, were more consistent with a fall from a height than, say, a direct assault. Peter's cause of death was due to the multiple injuries that he had sustained. Where this fall had taken place, however, had yet to be established, and how his clothing had remained clean and undamaged was also strange. Detective Chief Inspector John Harris did discuss some of the theories that had been put forward for what happened to Peter. Could Peter have had some sort of accident in the underpass, perhaps a fall of some sort? Had he been harmed by somebody else? Had he committed suicide? The last theory was one that his family denied. Peter's father, Percy, said that Peter was afraid of death and was very preoccupied with cleanliness and hygiene. He told the inquest, if he received a small scratch, he had to have antiseptic for it. It was an attitude which he had joked about at home. This was something, therefore, that Percy could not believe Peter would do to himself. Detective Chief Inspector Harris also speculated whether he could have had a fall elsewhere and someone had taken him to the underpass. The inquest heard how the investigation had been unable to find any witnesses to Peter being on the train to London or anyone that could account for his whereabouts between 9.15pm and when his body was found at 1.35am. This, along with the delay in identifying Peter, made it very difficult to narrow down a timeline or even confirm how he got to London in the first place. This left what was described at the inquest as considerable doubt as to how Peter had died. This considerable doubt meant that the jury tasked with deciding what had happened to him had a very tough job. They deliberated and eventually came back with a verdict. They had decided unanimously that Peter's death had been due to murder by person or persons unknown. There was now no doubt. Peter had not had some sort of tragic accident. He had been killed at the hands of someone else. But who was this person and why had they killed him? Peter's case finally had a decision, however it left more questions than answers. Percy Watts, Peter's father, spoke to the press after the inquest and he told them that the verdict had been expected by him and his family. He stated that he believed that Peter had been abducted. He stated, I think he may well have been abducted. He was a friendly boy, easy with people, and I don't believe he went of his own free will. He was also asked if he was satisfied with the verdict, to which he replied, How can I be satisfied? My son is dead, and this was the end of 15 years of loving care. This is a poignant statement, and one that fully sums up his feelings in this case. It would appear that Peter's family agreed with the fact that he had been murdered. They explained that Peter could be far too trusting, and that he could be taken in by people. This, they believe, may have made him more of a target for someone who wanted to harm him. Despite the verdict, the police did not appear to be any closer to solving what had happened. With no witnesses, no solid leads and a lack of a motive, detectives came to a standstill. Just a month after the inquest, a lead finally came in. Police were handed a handwritten letter from North Wales Weekly News newspaper. The letter implicated a woman in Peter's murder, stating that she had abducted him from Station Square in Colwyn Bay on the day that he disappeared. 
the author of the letter also gave a description of her car, along with the registration number. The author said that Peter was seen getting into the car and then being driven away. This was progress for an investigation that had struggled to get off the ground, and they looked into it immediately. They didn't get the breakthrough that they had hoped. They discovered after tracing the car that the letter had been written by a man who had a personal vendetta against a female relative. The claims in it had been entirely false. Detective Chief Inspector John Hughes stated that writing the letter was a very sick thing to do. Sadly, in unsolved cases, people do insert themselves into the investigation for their own means, and this gave Peter's family hope that was then taken away from them. 1976 turned into 1977, and there were still no conclusions to the investigation. Peter's family were struggling to come to terms with what had happened to him, and they spoke to the newspapers in January of that year. His father Percy spoke about the investigation, stating, I think that the police investigation has been a bit inadequate, and I feel that more could be done. Peter was not the type to go off to London without letting us know, and I believe he was abducted, possibly by someone he knew. There is nothing more I can think of or do. He also made a comment about who he believes might be able to solve it, saying, I'm sure that someone in North Wales has the answer. The police also made a comment about the investigation, and although the North Wales police were carrying out some inquiries, it was actually in the hands of Scotland Yard. Detective Superintendent John Harris, who was part of the Yard's serious crime squad, was in charge of the case, and he explained that it was one of the most baffling that he had ever investigated. He made a statement to North Wales Weekly, saying, It's a very strange story, and despite all the work that has been put in and all the help from the media, we have been unable to discover how he got to London. There were theories that he had died accidentally and had been dumped in the underpass by someone. Another possibility was suicide, although there were no apparent reasons for him to take his own life. We are just left with the inquest jury verdict of murder by person or persons unknown. I can't say that I think the case will never be solved, because I have charged people with murder two years after the offence. It's still a matter of piecing together what bits of information we do receive, and I would like to stress that it's not too late for people to come forward if they think that they can help us in the investigation. It was clear that the police were still completely in the dark about what had happened to Peter, and without new leads the investigation would not move forward. This is unfortunately how the case has stayed since then. Peter's murder remains unsolved. 45 years have passed without anything new being reported on. In 2016, Peter's case was once again featured in the press, with his brother Mark appealing to the public and talking about the case. He explained what he knew about that day and about his brother and his disappearance. He told ITV, I was the last person to speak to him. I put my head around the bedroom door and said goodbye before I left the house with mum and dad, and he seemed perfectly normal at the time, no indication that anything was about to go wrong. This is a sentiment that both of Peter's parents had also said at the time of Peter's disappearance. He had seemed his normal self. Nothing appeared out of the ordinary or unusual. Mark also stated that he didn't believe the long-held theory that Peter had got on a train down to London that day. He stated, 
I have always suspected that he did not travel by train, but that statement came out early in the investigation and was grasped by the press, and it became a strong fact without any real substantiation to it. This also appeared to match the lack of witnesses who had actually seen Peter on the train that day, and there was no corroboration that he had actually even boarded a train. From the beginning this was merely a theory and one that could not be confirmed. In 2016, Detective Inspector Susan Stansfield from the Metropolitan Police Homicide Special Casework Investigation Team reportedly sat down with Mark and looked again through the case file. She also made some statements to the press and gave some possible new information. She stated, The taxi driver who found Peter's body was joined by another taxi driver and he remembers as he drove into the tunnel that he saw a car driving out and turning left and through the lights. The car has simply been referred to as green. This information was not made public at the time, but could point to someone else being present in the underpass. Both Mark and Detective Inspector Stansfield have both stated that the only way they believe that it will be solved is if someone comes forward with new information. Detective Inspector Stansfield said, It's a long time ago, but if someone thought it was odd at the time and was travelling around the Euston area and remembers this gangly lad in a brown leather jacket wearing glasses looking over the bridge. Mark echoed this and also appealed for people to come forward, stating, The police can't do anything without information. It would require someone to walk in and make a statement with some fact behind it. Their appeals are crucial to jog the public's memory about that night and the events that occurred in that underpass near Euston. Mark explained the effect that Peter's unsolved murder has had on his family. He told ITV that his parents had always believed that Peter had been abducted and they spent the last years of their lives believing that they had let him down in some way. He stated, If you're a parent and you lose a child, you always shoulder some guilt and blame and in Peter's case, because there are so many unanswered questions, they were always afraid that he had run away from home and they'd let him down in some way. So they spent the last 40 years of their life going through the motions, but really struggling with that knowledge. This is exactly why, no matter how old a case is, it's still so important to keep it alive in people's memories. Peter's parents suffered so much due to what happened to their son and his family is still suffering to this day without answers. So what happened to Peter Watts on the 18th of January 1976? There is so much we don't know about his movements that day, but we do know that he left his house after his parents and brother had left at around half three. He hadn't said that he was going anywhere, but did leave a note saying that he had gone to meet a friend to do some revision. After this point, we have no timeline for where he went next. It wasn't until ten hours later that he is found in the underpass close to Euston in London. He has injuries consistent with a fall and not an assault, but there is no dirt in any of his wounds or debris on his clothes. The only possible witness was the ticket officer who stated that he believed Peter bought a return ticket to Chester with a £10 note. This has never been officially confirmed. So how did Peter get to London? Did he get on the Hollyhead to Euston train as was thought? Or was he driven there by someone? Had he been abducted? If he had been abducted, what had happened to him? As his injuries suggested that he had fallen. 
The jury at the inquest ruled it was murder, which seems to be corroborated by the fact that his belongings were nowhere to be found, including his ring, watch and wallet. There are so many baffling aspects to this case, and nothing at all concrete, and I think that the police and his brother Mark are correct. This case is going to take someone coming forward with information to finally get it solved, and I really do hope that it eventually happens. Peter was last seen wearing a long brown leather jacket, trousers and a roll neck sweater. He had long brown hair and brown eyes and was around 5 feet 11 inches tall. If you remember seeing him at the time or know anything about his murder, please contact 020-72-307-963 or Crime Stoppers at 0800 555 111. Thank you for listening to today's episode and thank you as always to our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to support us further, you can on Patreon where you can get ad-free early access episodes, bonus episodes, stickers and shout-outs. Head over and have a look in the show notes. You can also leave us a review wherever you listen or just follow us on social media on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube and Facebook where I also have a discussion group. If you would like to come to CrimeCon in September and see me on Podcast Row, use my code UNSEEN for 10% off. This is great if you're looking at booking tickets and helps the show too. If you have any suggestions or comments, you can find me on social media and also at theunseenpod at gmail.com. As always, thanks for listening. I'm Caprice and this has been Unseen. 